Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 21. Today I'm talking to Catherine Babmagira, who's the author of Poe for Your Problems. She is a Richmond journalist and writer who is an expert on Edgar Allan Poe. I love talking to Catherine because I'm a really huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe's, and I have several books about his life, and um, I've read all of his work throughout my life, and I've always really enjoyed his work thoroughly. Um, his work to me has always been exciting because he had an audaciousness to his writing, and he had a wholly unique thought process that I thought was just so refreshing and I often identified with. Um, one would ask, you know, how could you use Edgar Allan Poe to identify with modern problems and the things that we go through? Catherine's going to talk to you, me about that, and you'll find that in many cases, uh, Poe could very well identify with the problems that we have nowadays, and he could be rel very relative to what we um, go through today. I really had a great conversation with Catherine, and I'm going to go ahead and take you to that right now. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm talking to Catherine Babmagira, who is grew up in South Carolina in Richmond, Virginia. Catherine majored in English at the University of South Carolina and did an MA in creative writing at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Catherine is a freelance journalist and has contributed to the Wall Street Journal, Slate, CNBC and NBC News, LitHub, Electric Lit, and many others. Poe for Your Problems is her first book. Catherine, Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you majored in English and have a great career as a writer. What brought you to writing? When did you have the aha moment where you thought, I'm going to be a writer? You know, I think like a lot of people, this is something I knew I wanted from the time I was a really little kid. Uh, my mom used to take us to the library virtually every week and let me get whatever I wanted. And I come from a pretty strict religious background. So the freedom of being able to tackle any topic of the library really mattered to me. And it made me even more interested in books. I'm also a person who just, the way I absorb information is through text. Uh, and I very specifically, I can remember at my elementary school in the fourth grade, my teacher having us, I think this must've been Halloween, but she had us put our heads down on our desks and cover our eyes so that she could read us the Raven and we could really absorb it. And for me, it was like a first experience of art. It was a kind of an, an epiphany experience, just realizing the power of words, what they can do and the impact a person can have even so many years after their death. So I don't really think it's an exaggeration uh, to say that Poe was a very early inspiration for me. And it's kind of ironic that he ended up becoming one so much later in my life, but that's just how it shook out. Where, um, now you mentioned that specifically, and was that your first kind of aha moment with Poe, po, or did you later on read his work and kind of rediscover his work later? I did. So I got into him as a kid after that introduction in elementary school, and I tore through everything I could find, the stories, the poems. And then it was much later, you know, the academy doesn't always love Poe. He's not necessarily big in English departments. Of course, there are Poe scholars, there are many of them. And Poe studies is a large discipline in English lit, but um, I didn't encounter him as an undergraduate or as a graduate student 
it wasn't until this was late 2016. And um, I'm a person who's had depressive episodes chronically my entire life. I'm sure some people can relate to that um, from the time I was a little child. In any case, uh, in 2016, I just had the worst one before or since touch wood. Uh, I had to take mental health leave from work and I couldn't eat or sleep. And I was really in like the depths of a pretty terrible crisis. And some intuition had me reading Poe again. I had my childhood copy of the complete tales of mystery and imagination. And I think the first one I read was The Pit and the Pendulum. And it was kind of like an epiphany experience. I didn't see this coming, but immediately just reading the first lines of the story and people will remember it's the lines are, I was sick, sick onto death with that long agony. And tears were just rolling down my face. I was crying in my bathtub like I did a lot of it this time yeah. because I realized that Poe was not just talking about the Spanish Inquisition. He was really talking about the pain of the human condition. And I realized how much he knew about depression and anxiety. And that was so moving. It was like a kind of a connection across the ages. And I got so into him all over again. I tore through the fiction, the poetry, his letters, which are, there are about a thousand pages worth of them, just tissue thin. And they're hilarious at points and they're agonizing at others. And, and then I started getting into the biographies. And as you know, Dan, like, Poe biography is an incredibly contested, deep field. And I started tearing into those and I read, there are about a dozen major ones and uh, probably about six major ones, I would say, and then maybe a dozen minor ones. And then if you keep looking, you'll keep finding them. It kind of never ends. Yeah. So I got really into those and I was so moved by how much he produced and the quality of what he produced in the context of so much suffering and disappointment. Like I find it to be a really edifying example of artistic perseverance. And also I had no idea how funny the guy could be. Like, I don't think he, I still think to this day, he's never gotten credit for how funny he could be. Okay. So I've read a lot. I have a lot of, I mean, I, I doubt I have like a 10th of the books you have, but I have a lot of Poe biographies. And for me, I think in my adulthood reading his life, the one thing that was kind of weird for me was I always, always thought of him in his writing as he was very punk rock. Cause I was, he was like, he wrote <laughs> stuff that was like, he didn't care what anybody else thought he's going to write what he, he wanted to. I'm sure he wrote popular stuff too, but like he really wanted, like he kind of like wrote stuff that seemed incongruous with the rest of the writing at the time period. And I just was like, but then I saw that he came from like some privilege, like David Poe, his father kind of did so much for him and tried to make him. So he had everything set up with, and he came from like money too. Like he went to the best schools and the best military school would he have kind of been like a Kardashian of his time period or something? <laughs> I love that as the example. Well, it's kind of a complicated story, as you know. Um, his parents, his biological parents were gone very soon. Um, his dad did come from money, uh, but he gave up a lot of that privilege when he became an actor. He was a law student coming from a fairly well-to-do Baltimore family. But then he gave all that up to pursue Poe's mom and become a traveling actor like she was, but he didn't have the acting career he anticipated having and he became kind of bitter around about that. Uh, a lot of the drinking maybe seems to have come from that side of the family. And then Poe did experience this incredible good fortune in that when his biological parents were gone, he was adopted by a wealthy foster family here in Richmond where I live. And uh, 
He did. Yeah. He went to uh, English boarding schools when the family was living overseas. He got to travel internationally. He had an absolutely excellent education by the standards of the time. He went to an early version of UVA for, you know, about two semesters, but it was more than most people received at the time and more than he would have received otherwise. I think in some ways this contributed to his bitterness, which is kind of understandable. He never managed to attain in adult life the standard of living that he'd enjoyed as a child. Then right. as now, it's incredibly difficult to make a living as a writer. And he had these kind of like gentlemanly impulses and gentlemanly tastes that he could never indulge. And I think he was deeply ashamed of it. I think his friends kind of report his attempts to maintain this le level of dignity, which he really couldn't access. I mean, the same is true now. We may have ideas of how we want to live in terms of clothes or food or housing. And if you can't afford it, you can't afford it, unfortunately. So Poe is kind of in that situation. That, like his economic struggles, I find very relatable because it's not like things have changed so much on that front. You know, our system is maybe a bit less brutal than it was in antebellum America. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's a land of have and have nots. And for artists, it's not at all easy to make a living. No, like I'm a Gen Xer and I really mm. identified with that to a certain degree because like I know for my father, you know, he just got a job and did well, got a house, blah, blah, blah. And for me, like I went into it and I was just like struggling and, I've, and I'm still struggling. Mm -hmm. So I just, I really identify with that to a certain degree. Like, you know, you feel like I should have this, this and this, but you don't, you know, and it's kind of like, reality hits you and you're like oh the world's different than I thought it was that's wonder, so true yeah I wonder if like I don't know like I think about his life and he always has been a mystery to me like his gambling and everything like I just wonder dude what were you thinking like you threw it all away you could have had this great you know military career and you just tossed it away like it always befuddled me like how he could just do that yeah, he had a self-destructive streak like no other. He's an incredibly self-sabotaging person in some ways. I would also say, though, that sometimes that self-sabotage was working for him. In the sense, uh, it's not always the case that people who succeed in existing like socioeconomic systems are inspired to do the kind of groundbreaking work that he did, that challenged the assumptions of the system that operates somewhat outside it. You know what I mean? Like there's an element of outsider art to it that I think continues to resonate and helps make it so powerful. He was in a lot of ways, you know, kind of thumbing his nose at the establishment at various points to his detriment. I mean, it hurt his employment prospects. It caused him to feud with other writers when he was slashing people up in his reviews. But even that kind of worked to his benefit because the controversy around his life continues to this day and it kind of helped spawn the whole Poe industry. That was one thing that really attracted me to the field and that you see how Poe's flaws in some ways work for him and even his bad luck in some ways work for him, which is, you know, as a person who has the same struggles you're describing, uh, I don't make a living as a writer. I have a day job in corporate marketing. That's what I do for money. Um, I found those things inspiring because even in spite of it all, he managed to achieve so much despite or because of it all, I guess I would say. Well, also I thought he must've had um, an amazing inner, an inner mind to, to like kind of pen, like kind of plumb the depths that he did. Like when I read the Casco, the Casco Amontillado, I was just really 
fell in love with it as a child, which I know sounds creepy, mm. but like, like no, I always thought this is the best book, like this best story, because it just, you know, like he must've like had people read it and be very shocked at the time period. Even now it's a very shocking story. When I read it out loud for Poe events, people are like creeped out by it. And oh, yeah. the Telltale Heart must've been like an amazingly very punk rock kind of story for the time period. I bet it set people on their ear. And so, I mean, to think of like what his inner monologues must have been like and just to think of the detective novel how he kind of invented it like he did all this just within his own time frame when he may not have had these references he was still able to think of other worlds and other places and kind of be there i agree with all that i think it's so true i would just add that in some ways when he was working commercial forms like gothic horror was known at the time it was out of fashion actually by the time he came to it and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was 1816. So we can see he's working a couple of decades after maybe the height of Gothic horror in English. Uh, and yet the way he's able to work in this commercial form, and at the same time, he is layering these stories with so much additional meaning, so much psychological insight that still to this day is impressive. Like in The Imp of the Perverse, which is one of my favorite post stories, that's the one where he talks about how we're drawn to doing things that we know we shouldn't do. His insight in that story and his insight into just the human character is stunning. And the fact that he was able to do it within like this quasi short story essay form that he could sell is amazing to me. And, and you know, he wasn't earning a lot for these pieces, but the sheer fact that he earned any money for them at all, that he managed to publish it all is just so impressive. Uh, the amount of drive that he had, I mean, in some ways, like a turmoil, you're right, he must have had just constantly churning. It also, in some ways, I think, motivated him to get his version out there. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine the first person that laid their eyes on Bernice and how <laughs> they must have thought, um, dude, this is messed up. We're not publishing this. <laughs> oh, you're, you're not wrong, actually. He exchanged letters with the publisher who he ended up working for later, the Southern Literary Messenger. Uh, he, he was explaining why he had written a story that is about prying the teeth out of maybe a living woman who's in a grave, maybe a dead woman who's in the grave. Uh, and there's some sort of borderline romantic or sexual attraction still going on. Uh, yeah. So that whole deal, he's saying to the publisher, like, you know, I just wrote this to get attention. If you want to be a writer, you have to be read. So here I am getting readers and you benefit because your magazine needs readers too. So you should publish my work. So you have a whole like kind of commercial argument for going there, which I appreciate, but I also think that he was kind of just justifying his own interests in a sense, like his own fascination with like the darkest parts of human experience. Now, um, do you have any favorites? I mean, I know this is an impossible question, but do you have any favorite stories of his? I can think of two that are just endlessly meaningful for me. The Man of the Crowd is one of my favorites. And I open my book with a quote from it. Um, and then people will remember that that's where the man uh, chases a supposed quasi criminal through crowds and determines that the man is a criminal because he cannot be alone. And it's this amazing meditation on loneliness and character. And I think like, it's just full of self-revelation. I read it and I feel like my loneliness and introversion and difficulty fitting in are all kind of seen by Poe. And like, I feel seen by the story. 
that's not the only way to interpret it. But um, and then my favorite, the one I read and reread is one of the lesser known Poe works. It's called Eureka. This is from 1848. So quite near the end of Poe's life. And he's at the time he wrote Eureka, he's in an, essentially having a nervous breakdown after the death of his wife, Virginia. And he writes what I consider like to be just a totally galaxy brained space opera. It's a 40,000 word prose poem about astrophysics and the origin of the universe. And he's making these guesses based on a, a very incomplete grasp of the science, even at the time. And then he extrapolates from the scientific conclusions, his thoughts on the cosmology of the universe and what we're doing here and why we're born and why human existence is so full of pain. And it's beautiful, especially that like metaphysical meditation at the end. He talks about how um, one way that we come to knowledge is just completely inside of our own souls and almost can't be shared, but it's where the ultimate revelation happens, where we come to the most understanding of existence in the universe, which I find beautiful. And I love that he went there. It's so, it's such a weird work. Only academics tend to read it now. Uh, but if you ever hear the rumor that Poe anticipated the Big Bang Theory, it's coming out of Eureka because some people interpret it that way. Now, um, I've always liked his story, William Wilson, where he talks about a double. Mm -hmm. And do you so I, I've heard people speculate that, you know, he's talking about his own um, self-destructive nature. Do you think that's true? Do you, I have, I think there's a, a number of interpretations you can get to with that story. Where, where I landed with it is in William Wilson, the story begins in a boarding school. And the boarding school, the setting that he uses matches us up, matches up almost perfectly with Poe's experience of boarding school. He's describing, he admitted in his own lifetime that he was describing the boarding school that he went to outside London. And Poe's ground, like the fact that, so his biological parents are dead by the time he's three years old. Uh, then his foster parents, Tim, but their own marriage is troubled. So if you think about the attachment of this series of relationships with a very young child, Poe lost his, his primary attachments to his biological parents. And then his attachments to his foster parents were somewhat insecure because of his foster mother's health, because of his foster father's attitudes about everything. So he was, when he went to boarding school, it was yet another broken attachment uh, for him as I interpret it. And so the fact that he's writing this story in adult life about a sense of having one shell of a person meeting an interior self, I think is very revealing about where he was psychologically at six and seven, eight and nine when he was in boarding school. There's even a term for this now, it's called boarding school syndrome. This English psychoanalyst, Joy Shafarian, came up with a theory of like, why is the English ruling class like they are? Uh, and she attributes it to the experience of broken attachments brought on by the boarding school. Super interesting field if, you ever, if anyone wants to Google. I think it's an early description of boarding school syndrome in the literature. But also, you know, I, th I think he's talking in, in one like very recognizable sense of how difficult self-recognition is and kind of knowing you are the problem. <laughs> like, you know, the, everyone's talking about this Taylor Swift song that just came out lately in which she says, I'm the problem, it's me. Hey, that's a feeling I can totally relate to. And I think that's part of what Poe is talking about in William Wilson, where just 
the problems begin and end with yourself, which is a terrible thing because it's even harder to control than something happening, happening exterior to you. I noticed um, when I was reading the biographies about him, they talk a lot about his relationship with his um, adoptive parents. And I've known many people in my life who've been adopted. And I've mm. noticed that some, a lot of similarities with Poe in that there's this struggle that people have that are adopted often where they really have a hard time of it. And many of the people I know that are adopted are all just accomplished, amazing people who mm. are just so, just very accomplished, but they still have this like thing that they carry around with them almost visually where mm -hmm. they're wrestling with the fact that they were adopted and their parents are, are deceased. Did you, what do you make of that as far as Poe's life and, and what that may you know, be like for people that, that kind of wrestle with, with the issue that they you know, have to deal with when they're adopted? I think what you're saying is true and points to like a very complex truth. I don't have firsthand experience of adoption. Uh, I didn't live it, but I do have friends too who are adopted and it's a complex and complicated thing for them. Some see it, you know, as an, as overwhelmingly positive and others have very mixed especially depending on what kind of family they had landed in. And I think just societally, we're coming to an understanding of how complex that is and starting to society, how much it shapes us, those early attachments that we have to caregivers and whether they're secure, secure, and the amazing amount of human development that just happens from age, you know, nothing to age three. I say this as a mom of a two-year-old too, that a, little, a lot's happening in that phase of things. I think one th the, my first chapter kind of goes into this because it was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about Poe's life too. I think you're right to go down Avenue because his amazing inner drive in the face of the difficult conditions that he lived in, like sometimes instances, literal constant need for money, ailing family members, constant professional disappointment, the fact that he kept going and that he was so enormously productive, you know, you have dozens of these stories, we have dozens of the poems, the essays and reviews are, you know, there are thousands of pages of these. Uh, I don't know that you get there without the incredible inner turmoil brought on by these rough early experiences. And I'm not saying like, I don't want to bright side that for people and say, oh, you're fortunate to have been at, at a disadvantage. Yeah. Obviously yeah. adversity does not affect everybody the same way. In some cases, rare individuals in some sense, in a kind of brutal way, thrive on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not to bright side it completely, but I think there's an element there of you want to climb the highest hill there is just so you can scream from the top. Yeah, I get that. Now he. Poe had this thing that I love because he existed before um, social media. Mm. And, but he, you already know where I'm going with this. So he was engaging in flame wars basically with other writers uh, back when the uh, editor, editorial page or the um, letters page of a newsletter of a magazines and newspapers was a big deal. I think many people who don't even know what a newspaper is nowadays don't remember that, but I remember the newspaper uh, write-in page and how big a deal that was. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that this part of his personality is just hilarious and fascinating to me. 
Yeah, and it, there's an element of PR savvy in it, I, I think, too. Yeah. Uh, saying that as somebody who works in marketing and PR a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think we can understand, especially his editorial career in magazines, as a kind of early form of a proto form of internet trolling. Yep. He talked about how he was specifically aiming to, and people accused him of this too in his own lifetime, that he was aiming to achieve notoriety by the loudness of the abuse he was putting across. People still do this. I mean, that explains Twitter in one sentence. Yeah. Uh, and yet there's an element of PR savvy in it, in that I don't love this reality, but the nastier you are, the more people tend to pay attention that loud angry, outraged voices often gain attention in a crowded attention market. You know, that's not nice, It's but it's reality. And Poe was so aware of this so long before, you know, Facebook, anything else. It's really kind of cool to see that it's a human reality that hasn't changed because it makes us uh, understand his time, I think, in a much more positive way. And also like his era has a lot in common with ours in that it was the early days of this explosive, explosive information age. This is the dawn of what we would call mass media in America, where you start to have magazines and newspapers that can reach a national audience and where one voice can reach a national audience. Uh, now you have the same thing now where we're uh, also having like a total disruption in the media space and it's very uh, uneven and journalism is an unstable field. I look at post era and feel a lot of recognition. I've seen a lot of adaptations um, of films that have Poe as a character in it or Poe like kind of a semi biographical, but usually embellished as a story as well. Uh, being done. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a straight Poe biography done in film, but you see a lot of representations where people want to characterize him. Mm. Where, do, where do you think we get the characterizations of Poe right? And where do you think we get it wrong? You know, first I would say that I think I've, I'm a fan of a range of interpretations and I'm not a person who's going to insist on strict biographical accuracy and in movies like The Raven from 2012 where John Cusack plays Poe is like kind of a lecherous character which he does not seem to have been in real life. Uh, I understand that the need for latitude and something like that. Uh, I think in general where we get Poe wrong in our sense of him is that uh, people do not accomplish what he accomplished if you're just a raving drunk who's acting nuts all the time and constantly leading a loud public life. That what, There was an element of those things in his life for sure, and they are memorable. But a lot of his time was just your strict like butt in chair doing the work. He cannot be as productive as, as he was. So I think he had an incredible amount of self-discipline and I, I admire it. I need that kind of self-discipline too. Uh, the one really common perception about Poe is that he was addicted to drugs because he alludes to opium a number of times in the stories. That was just a convention of romantic literature. Uh, he was kind of adopting that from Coleridge and, uh, you know, confessions of an English opium eater and a lot of period literature, basically. He was not, as so far as we can tell, a person who used drugs. I would say even that the alcohol use is more episodic than we give it credit for. Whether Poe is an alcoholic, my modern standards, I think is, you know, that's open, that's an open question. 
uh, it was definitely a maladaptive behavior, but also he lived in a time in which there was no Wellbutrin, you know, no Brené Brown or yoga or anything like that. There weren't productive, healthier ways to deal with stress and people who could drink did a lot. So by even by the standards of his time, he, he wasn't uh, necessarily that notable of a drinker, but you really, it's, it's hard to say exactly how much of a promise. Uh, he also died, you know, quite young. So whether he would have grown out of these tendencies, I don't know. You know, he was 40 when he died. Yeah, it's pretty young. Fine. Yeah. You know, that even by the standards of the time, that wasn't, that was an early death in some ways. Uh, I also think I was prepared to come to a very different conclusion about him marrying his 13 year old cousin. He was 27 at the time he married her. But having gone through what evidence we have, my sensation walking away from looking at the marriage is that it was one of intense devotion and mutual love. And, you know, there's an incredible amount of caring that comes through in people's accounts of the marriage, like firsthand accounts of the marriage. And then the few bits of remaining evidence we have of exchanges between the two of them. So while I was prepared to think that this was you know, something gross. Uh, I, that's not what I came away thinking. I was quite moved by the spectacle of how devoted they were to each other in the face of everything they had to live through, like her illness. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Now, you have a newsletter, Poke and Save Your Life. Did that come before Poe for Your Problems? No, I started that when I knew, when I, after I sold the book, I thought I need to be putting some of this out there ahead of time to try and build an audience for this kind of weird, but fun treatment of Poe. And I also, you know, a book is so limited in the sense of you have to adopt a tone and sort of maintain it. Where I could talk as you're, as you're learning uh, about Poe all day long and in so many different sort of facets of his life that I wanted room for like a kind of unmade bed version and also to fit in material that wasn't going to fit in the book and talk even more directly to issues that we all face now, especially in media careers and creative careers uh, that I was worried if I put too much of that in the book, it might get dated because, you know, YouTube may not be in the same place as in three years and people might not conceive of the media landscape in quite the same way in a couple yeah. of years. Now, you must have gotten a lot of feedback from the newsletter. Um, and I know that a lot of, I mean, I've seen references to it. I've seen people, you know, uh, tweeting about it. What was some of the feedback you got? Because I know Poe is like an amazing touchstone. Like if I'm on a train and I'm talking to somebody who likes Poe, we can talk mm -hmm. all day. You must have had a lot of feedback about this. It's fantastic. It's, I, I keep using the word moving, but that is how I, I experience it. It's kind of like these moments of transcendence where we're in touch interpersonally and then also with a historical figure who's been dead for 173 years and yet is this very real cultural presence who's touched so many people. Then maybe that sounds cheesy, but I really do believe it. Um, 
I love hearing stories from other people. And this will happen like whether I'm tweeting about Poe or whether recently I've spoken to a number of groups of senior citizens here in my hometown. They have experiences of it. They'll often talk about how they converted their grandchildren into readers by giving them Poe. So to see like the range of experiences people have had with him and how much they're touched by him too, it makes me feel less alone and less weird. So that's really good. Um, and then I love newsletters as a format because it's a good, it's more intimate than broadcasting on say social media. And you, there's a chance for private exchanges too, where people can respond in comments or they can email me, which is nice because I'm an introvert. I don't necessarily always want to talk to somebody in comments or put it on the record. Uh, so as Substack gets bigger, I understand more and more why, or like why newsletter culture tends to get bigger right now. Email is like a, I think in some ways kind of having a little bit of a renaissance as a form. It reminds me of like, I was in college and in the mid aughts in graduate school. And at the time, my friends and I wrote long, intimate, confessional emails to each other. And that's kind of how we kept in touch. And now that form is kind of getting revived a little bit. Have you noticed any of that too? Yeah, like for me, I remember back in the 80s, I read a lot of zines and I wrote for zines. And I remember, you know, zines were such a big deal for me and magazines oh. were huge. I mean, I used to just look forward to going to the bookstore and picking magazines out. We had, And there were so many. And now we don't really have that anymore. And I feel like it's like you write for Lit Hub as an example. I look forward to Lit Hub every single day. Oh, yeah. I get their daily news. Okay. Yeah. And it's the best. And I really enjoy so many of the articles. I really don't ever have a time where I'm like looking at Lit Hub going, eh, usually there's mm -hmm. something there, you know, and, and you know, it's like as, as a person who gets it daily too, it kind of, I think, replaced that whole magazine zine thing. And mm. the writing levels are freaking amazing. I mean, we have like you, we have people like you who are writing these great articles and, it, and it's just kind of a joy. And I really love the Substack stuff too. I mean, we get some great input from writers and it's just, I feel like it's just the best of the best right now. Mm -hmm. And so much of that content is, I mean, for better or for worse with writers directly, it, it's free. And, you know, you can interact with people pretty directly. Like you can hit reply on something and talk to someone who's a hero of yours. At least I, I have done that with some frequency. Uh, I don't know. And in some ways it's a great time to be alive. I think so too. Yeah. And I, I've been able to talk to so many writers who are happy to talk to me and I'm like kind of amazed because I, I don't think I, that would have ever happened before. And it's, it's such a great rapid fireback, you know, from, from authors and we're talking about important things and it's just really cool. I love it. Mm, yeah. Same. You must get a lot of, um, input about your book from all over the world, because I know Poe has a huge following in Japan. There's a mm -hmm. lot of other cultures that really revere and respect Poe. Do you get a lot of input all, from all over the world? Too surprisingly, we, the foreign translations aren't even out yet. And I, I, yet I'll see on you know a German eBay-like site, the book selling, or uh, occasionally getting, let's see, I've heard from people in Chile lately, uh, which is really cool. And the Spanish translation is going to be out real soon. It's March of 2023. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, yeah, there are, there's a Poe cult in Japan. Like you say, Poe is surprisingly big in Australia and the book is there. I've heard from people there. Uh, I say surprisingly big in that, like, at least uh, according to my own firsthand experience there, I lived there for a couple of years and I saw uh, school children being taught Poe. Uh, yeah, it's really fun. I, I, I would look forward to hearing more from 
uh, French readers. We don't have a French translation yet, but uh, Poe is such a massive figure in France. And a lot of the French reading of Poe informed my takeaways. Like the French regard Poe as a hero and they love him on a level like Jerry Lewis. And as well, they so in a way, yeah, right. I totally agree. In a lot of ways, they interpret him better than we do here in America, even. So I would love to hear from that. It's one that's been fairly quiet, but also I don't speak French. So I mean, it may be happening and I don't know. I did actually, I heard from someone in Paris who was reading the book. Now, you had a story in an interview that I read about how you got inspired to write Poe for your problems. Can you tell our listeners that story? Sure. Um, after I encountered him as a child, I had this, you know, something of a nervous breakdown myself. I don't, I don't know if that's overstating it, but it was a very deep and dark place in my life where I was questioning everything, um, you know, the value of being alive at all and whether things are worth it, whether writing is worth pursuing, considering how many, how much rejection you get and uh, how difficult the field is. Uh, so when I re-encountered him, I discovered someone who had dealt with what I had and worse, who lived in an even more you know, brutal time by creative standards and other standards, uh, and yet had persevered in the face of those things. And it was such a unique individual at the same time. He hadn't succeeded by rubbing off his edges and conforming. He had succeeded by being his incredibly weird self. And that is so inspiring because, you know, oftentimes I think we're tempted to adapt to the market too much. It's not like no adaptation is, is the best route. Uh, but the fact that he managed to carve out such a humongous commercial career and stay true to his own weirdness, that is incredible to me. And I love seeing that. It's such a powerful example, too. I mean, to this day. Poe has more Facebook fans than Daniel Steele. He has more Facebook fans than <laughs> James Patterson. He has more Facebook fans than Colleen Hoover, and she is outselling the Bible right now. So the impact that he has had by being himself is crazy. And I think that's just, that's an amazing message for those of us who maybe, you know, are consider ourselves a little too attractive to the dark side of life and wonder about that tendency in ourselves or people who suffer from real deep depression or anxiety or any mental health issue really. I mean, I think there's significant evidence that Poe suffered those things too. Uh, yeah, he's in a way, like I kind of see him as a, as a literary saint. I come, I come from a Catholic background and I was encouraged as a child to sort of see the saints as friends and to adopt them as friends. And I think that's kind of what I did with Poe in adult life, right? He's kind of this inspirational saint-like figure in my life, but not because he's an uncomplicated guy, because he's a complicated guy. I like that. I like that quite a bit. Um, God, I wonder what he would think of, uh, I wish I could go back and talk to him and I'd like to tell him, you know, you could buy socks with your face on it. <laughs> right? You can have a Pope mug. My brother, I saw him at a Halloween party lately and he had brought me this plaque or, you know, kind of a plastic plaque that was being sold at Party City that had the Raven on it. Uh -huh, like yep. Party City. What other, and how has a NFL team named after the Ravens? I mean, the Raven, you know, it's who has that kind of impact and who was that weird at the same time? Now, normally I have uh, culinary guests on the program and you had mentioned that Poe had a, cheat, a Welsh rarebit recipe. Can we talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. Uh, so this is coming from his short story, Some Words with a Mummy, in which the scientists sit down and revive this mummy and have a talk with him about ancient Egypt. And it's a kind of satire on the political system in America in the 1840s. Anyway, it opens with this discussion of Welsh rarebit is a wonderful light supper. And Post's specific recommendation is that you have it with five bottles of porter, <laughs> uh, sorry, five <laughs> bottles of stout, which I'm not necessarily recommending that. But if people don't know what Welsh rarebit is, this is essentially you're making toast and then covering it with like a kind of cheese bechamel with Worcestershire sauce, uh, Dijon, and heavy cream rather than milk. I've never made it. I feel like I should. You can find recipes for it, and it's obviously very easy to make. It's cheese sauce on toast. Yeah. So Poe apparently was a big fan of this. He speaks about it in rave terms. So uh, whether you have it with humongous quantity of beer is another issue. You talk, um, we talked um, in this conversation about um, your experiences of depression when you were young. Many parents um, struggle with this issue with their children. And mm. I think that one thing we don't really understand is that you know children do wrestle with depression and that I think only recently have we started to take up that idea and talk about it. I think in the past, it was always like, what are you talking about? Snap out of it, go outside and get some fresh air, blah, blah, blah. It would have been some kind of BS kind of you know, take on the whole thing. Uh, you know. You know, you, you, we'll give you a reason to be sad, blah, 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 or something like that. But I think nowadays we actually do uh, take it into consideration that children do go through depression. And what do you think the best tact is for a parent who has a child that might be going, other than, of course, you know, taking your child to get mental uh, health checkups and, you know, have them talk to a professional? I think the point you're making is incredibly important that in the past, historically, we have totally underestimated children's capacity for grief and for depression and, and anxiety to the point where, I mean, psychologists debated whether children can grieve for a hundred plus years. And it wasn't until the 1960s where we began recognizing, like psychologists began recognizing that very young children, especially like take Poe losing his mom at nearly age three. Uh, I can't imagine a, that. Yeah. There's no more important figure in your life. He likely witnessed her, you know, agonizing death, tuberculosis and agonizing death. The fact that he grew up to become the, the world's foremost poet about grief. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, and also, you know, very young children can't articulate their feelings, but they can perceive a lot. Imagine like trying to express the grief of a, losing a parent when you're two and you have only, you know, a handful of words. That's incredibly difficult. And I think the same is true. Like you can extrapolate from there in a way of like an eight-year-old experiencing the first wave of chronic depression that's going to end up shaping their life. They don't have the language to describe it, but it doesn't mean their experience isn't incredibly powerful and valid and deserving of, you know, sympathy. I, I know it's a really difficult experience for the parent side. I've certainly heard from a lot of friends, like the pandemic, especially with people's teenagers made things really hard as people were, you know, young and old suffering. Uh, I would say this being a writer and a, a reader who tends to interact with the world that way, but I think helping your children to find fellow travelers Give your children power. And I said, not only that, obviously you want to seek out real treatment, but 
I think literature makes us feel less alone. The experience of uh, being in touch with forces larger than ourselves through art is an incredibly moving, important human experience and no less so for children, if anything more so for children than it is even for adults. So I guess that's like a long-winded way of saying that I think art therapy has a lot to offer us either like whether it's self like encouraging children to self-express and journaling or art painting that sort of thing or uh you know exposing them to more and I think exposing children to a really wide array of art you know from different mediums and traditions and so on I think that it can hardly fail to help Uh, yeah I worked in a um a psychological library for a long time and I I read Mm -hmm. so many new uh, dissertations on art therapy for children and I just so many good things about it so I uh, yeah, really excited about the idea of that. Um, I want to ask you also, without being, you know, because because I'm interested in your take on this as well. Um, I couldn't help but think about the Mask of Red Death during the quarantine. Did you mm. think about that also? Yes, and I mean, I think the San Francisco Chronicle ran an article where someone was making the comparison, and that got picked up maybe in AP newspapers generally, because I saw the article shared all over the place and rerun in other newspapers. Poets kind of endlessly relevant in that way. I thought, so I was writing the book in 2020 and thinking a lot about the Mask of the Red Death and descriptions of the level of public health measures in his day and the level of communicable disease and how people just lived with that. And of course, it shapes his writing. His people often somewhat joke about how he's obsessed with dying women. Uh, yeah, I if, if if you spend time with Poe, every experience becomes Poe-like. But also, he just had a lot of insight into different kinds of human experiences. So again, I think you could hardly fail to get something meaningful out of it. I um was always, I've read a lot of Poe. And the one story that always stands out is, it, I, I'm not going to say I don't feel like it doesn't belong with the others, but it seems to be like a standout is the fall of the House of Usher. Oh. Now, can you talk a little bit about your feelings on that story? Because to me, I always felt like it kind of sticks out of the book. Like it just kind of like is a non sequitur in a way, but a good one. I agree with you. I mean, I think it is the one that is the most obvious masterpiece in the fiction where Poe talked about unity of effect, which was his kind of his theory about how fiction should work, particularly that every element from choice of language to choice of theme and so on should be pulling in one direction to make one point. And the fall of the House of Usher, like that, where he really manages it, I think, is in that like environment and the descriptions of the house that all point to a psychological happening in the story where the, the the sort of like sickness and destruction in the family that is manifested in the house. As a piece of art, it's truly just a stunner. I love the opening paragraphs of that one. And I don't know that his craft ever got better. Uh, you, like, you can read that as a child and, and get that message. And you can read that as an adult and get it on an even deeper level. And the fact that it can function that way for vastly different audiences is so cool to me. So I think it's the one that kind of evokes the most raw admiration from me. Envy even, like artistic envy. I'm not suggesting I'm on this level, but it's one that makes me like, ah. 
Poe was a Bostonian by birth, but he grew up um, on his uh, in his own in Richmond, Virginia. Do you feel connected from Poe when you pass by some of the same environs that he was in during this time period? Very much so. Uh, he's a figure, you know, in my education growing up because he's part of the atmosphere in Richmond. He's like a kind of a hometown boy who made good. Baltimore and Richmond love to duke it out about whether he belongs there or here since he spent a good portion of his life in Baltimore too. And of course, Boston has a claim. New York has a claim. Philadelphia has a claim. I always say the reason he feels so resonant in Richmond is because <laughs> he went to high school here. And throughout his life, he often wanted to impress Richmond audiences. And I think it was because in some sense, he wanted to be like, hey, look, I'm successful. Uh, and in a way, like wherever you went to high school is your psychic prison, I think. And it's your, it's your Plato's cave. <laughs> and I know that because I went to high school here. So I see it manifesting in his life. And I know how it manifests in mine. I like that. That's really good. Um, now, I've seen a lot of your writing about other authors. So who are some of the other authors that, besides Poe that you study, that you follow? I'm a huge Kingsley Amos fan. He's really my favorite writer in the sense of who I read consist, reread consistently for pleasure. Uh, he's not as well known in the States as he is in the UK, of course, but Lucky Jim and The Old Devils are the big ones that people will know. Love him. I admire his craft so much. He's so funny. And his, the amazing amount of articulateness that he's getting across without seeming fussy or pretentious. It's something I really admire. Uh, I really love, I love James Hilton's work. He's, he wrote Lost Horizon and Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, I've been on a real big Mary Shelley kick lately. Her novels are a little, they're a little uneven, honestly, and not all of them are as enjoyable as Frankenstein. But also it's another one where it's kind of like Poe, like the work and context of the life just blows your mind. She dealt with so much loss and disappointment too. And Frankenstein is another one of those multivalent works where you can reread that and get something completely different every time. And it just grows in depth and complexity in this wonderful way. I, I recently read a um, biography of Mary Shelley and I've read mm. more earlier, but this one really kind of, I think, I think it was the most recent adaption, like the recent biography of her life, where it really talks about her life in a story kind of way. And mm -hmm. they, they, they based a film on it. And I was really thinking, God, the men in her life really let her down. Like from her father onward, they're all just were complete turds. And I oh, don't God. understand like how that must have been devastating for her to have the men in her life that she loved just completely uniformly, <laughs> just completely let her down. Uh, what did you think reading her work and her about studying about her life as well? Uh, so I'm working on this long, like 5,000 word essay about her marriage to Percy Bysshe Shelley and how he behaved. Uh, wow. Uh, he is uh, probably uh, one of the worst husbands in literature. Yeah, pretty much. History. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I would agree um, with that. And the degree to which her relationship with her father kind of primed her to love someone as brilliant and irresponsible as her father and Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's fascinating. And, you know, you have to kind of say that as much as the men in her personal life failed her, the era in which she was working and growing up are so, were so difficult for women. Uh, and yet she leads this incredibly trailblazing life where, you know, she lives with Percy Bysshe Shelley outside the confines of marriage. She has children with him. She defends him after his death at age 30. 
when, you know, her life goes on for several decades past then. I'm fascinated by the question of why she defended a lot of these people. I think the answer to that is pretty complicated in the sense of like, it's hard to tease out where the incredible patriarchy of the time is informing her. And then to tease out like what seems to have been like really genuine, passionate, in some ways lasting love between her and Percy. I don't know, you could go all over. I could write a book about her and just start now and not stop for about two years, I think. No, I mean, yeah, there's so much there because like she had no rights as a woman, yet she was the meal ticket for both her father and her husband. And I just don't, I'm just like, that seems to me just to be like, I'm like, wow, that's pretty horrible. But then she both loved both of them and she treated, I mean, she still loved her father despite the fact that he was horrible. Oh yeah. I, I could never figure that one out. I, it's a massive question. She, this is one thing I've come to think about her is it's remarkable that her work is maybe not remarkable that it has as much depth as it does, but she, as opposed to a Poe or certainly a Percy Bysshe Shelley or William Godwin, she behaved so well under such difficult conditions. She has such an admirable character. She's not constantly rec- recognizing with her own, like reckoning with her own, like Jungian shadow. You know what I mean? Like her mm. nature seems to have been so good. And in some ways I relate to her less just because wow, she was a great person and that rarely did anything that she must have been tempted to do in the sense of like kind of hitting back at these people who treated her so badly. And the dignity that she maintained in the face of this treatment is pretty incredible. I don't know. I admire her so much. Well, I mean, the one thing that I was was really struck by, we, we had a, um, we celebrated a, a five years back Frankenreads, the anniversary. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And we had a big night and we had people speaking and reading from Shelley's um, Frankenstein. But um, one of the people there that was a guest read um, basically did a psychological diagram of her life and basically mm. showed all the trauma in her life. It was extensive. And the one thing that just really at the end of it was that she triumphed and was strong and capable and basically was this amazing, resilient, strong person in the face of all this trauma. I mean, she had some really high trauma points throughout her life and she overcame all of it. And I don't think they talk about that enough. They still trying to, I think the popular idea is to paint her as a tragic figure. Whereas I'm like, she was a badass. Amazing. So like her, her raw intellectual firepower is crazy. Uh, and when, in some ways, like you can credit her father with educating her and talking to her about things that would not have been in stuff with the practices of the time. But yeah, her sheer intellect and her ability and her dedication to her work just is crazy, the level of it. Um, and this one, I, mean, I think in some ways, like you can kind of see that like her work saved her in a sense. Like she has, experiences the death of three of her four children. and. Not necessarily, the first one dies in early, early infancy. And then uh, Will Mouse and Clara die when they're toddlers. Uh, and she was extra- incredibly devoted to her children, like you'd imagine. Uh, and when she processes this grief, it tends to come out in just incredible dedication to reading very, very difficult books that I've never read and to uh, penning these massive, brainy novels. and wow what an admirable figure i don't think we 
give her half as much credit as she deserves. I really don't. Um, Frankenstein is just off the chart. You know, it's a classic. It still sells 40,000 copies a year, which is impressive to me too. So you can also point to her commercial success and admire that too, I think. Now, Mary's mother was a badass too. So do you think she oh, yeah. got that from her mother? I think in some ways, like she is, Mary Shelley is the daughter of some of the most brilliant intellectuals of the time, like Mary Wollstonecraft, her mother is, you know, pioneering feminist is a cliche that gets tossed around, but she's truly pioneering. And Mary, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft pursued a life of her own defining at a time when, I mean, wife beating is legal. She observes her own mother beaten and abused by her father. She resists being married. She deals with crappy men <laughs> that she's involved with, even Godwin to an extent, uh, and manages to, I mean, literally it's, it's world changer, her intellect and her publications. So the fact that she's Mary's mother and in a lot of sense, like doesn't suggest a coincidence because you really have, you can see Mary Shelley carrying on that legacy though, in some ways in a less public way because of the public, the pressure she was dealing with after Shelley, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley's death. I don't know. They're both incredible. It's a shame that we didn't get to see the lives of Percy Bysshe Shelley's and Mary Shelley's children more, you know, because three of the four died and the last one was kind of a strange guy who didn't do much. Um, you can only imagine though, like what might've come out of that union if those children had been lucky enough to survive to adulthood. Yeah. I mean, both her and Poe had so much in common that they had lost, you know, their mother at a young age. They um, both struggled with their uh, paternal figure. Mm. Um, they, they lost so many people in their lives, such horrible loss, including Mary had her sister she lost as well. And that was a horrible situation too. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Do you think they had a lot of commonality? Yeah. And I also, I think that's very true. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that they both worked in horror, uh, not just because obviously it was a dominant commercial form in Mary's life. And then it was to an extent in Poe's life in a sense that he was reviving it almost. It's kind of like today where have you, I don't know if you've heard this term metaphor. We, I really love it. It's where, you know, we really talked about how horror works on various levels where we understand it on a metaphorical level and a literal level. It's kind of speaking figuratively and speaking literally to us. That that what became their medium, I don't think is uh, at all a coincidence. You get to talk about horrific pain and circumstances, and you can also kind of talk out of the other side of your mouth about your own experience and layer in this experience of tragedy and depression, loss, disappointment. Um, it lets you talk about so much. I mean, that's still true now. I mean, it's not like we recognize Jordan Peele's movies as multivalent too. Do you see Victor Frankenstein as kind of a um, patchwork of her father and her husband? I definitely, yeah, I definitely do. I think he's, he's not just representing something. He's a character, but he also is representing men carelessly creating things and then not caring for them, carelessly yeah. advancing science and technology without sufficient concern for who it affects and carelessly behaving in ways that really hurt the lives of the women and children around them, among others. Yeah, I was telling, I mean, trying to, we were having this discussion when we had Frank and Reads. I'm like, he would have been a bro. He would have been like on 4chan. 
<laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Okay, so this is an unfair question because you're in the midst of um, promoting your book, um, but what's next for you? So I'm writing that long essay on Mary Shelley, which I'm excited about, loosely thinking about another nonfiction book, and I'm writing a horror novel, which ah. who knows if that'll ever, ever will see the light of day. Uh, it's based on some local history in my neighborhood. But uh, I've never sold fiction before, so we'll see. I'm hopeful, but also realistic. It's very difficult too, so. I hope, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to more yeah. from you. So Catherine, thank you for being on the podcast. I've had such a great time talking to you. Thank you for letting me pick your brain about Poe and Mary Shelley. This has been like such a, a pleasure for me. Thank you. A huge pleasure for me too, Dean. So thank you for asking me. Now, for our listening audience, um, we're going to have a link to uh, Poe for Your Problems online. You could purchase it through major vendors or at all better bookstores. Catherine, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks again. Great pleasure. That was my conversation with Catherine Bab Magira, who's written the book Poe for Your Problems. We'll have a link to purchase the book, and we'll also have information on her website in the bio as well. Next week, we're going to have Terry Barr on the program. He'll be talking about his brand new book. Terry Barr, you may know, is the first guest that we've had on the show. I always look for any chance we can have to talk to him because he's just a great person to talk to and very fun. You're going to want to check that out. I hope you can uh, share these episodes with a friend on social media. We always like having new listeners to the program. I hope you all have had a great holiday season this last week and um, had a chance to cook up some yummy food. Take care. I'll talk to you next week. Keep on cooking. <music>inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply 